Hello everyone, my name is Cami Mondo, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Forum. You're listening to Behind the Ballot, a political podcast introducing you to the candidates running for Utah's statewide and congressional offices. In each episode, we'll be talking with different candidates to find out more about their campaign platforms, specifically addressing the issues college students care about the most. Today, you'll be hearing an exclusive interview with Chris Peterson and Karina Brown, the Democratic duo running for governor and lieutenant governor. The two will run on a ticket facing current Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox and his running mate, Representative Deidre Henderson. The 2020 governor's race has seen a lot of attention in Utah this year, as incumbent Governor Gary Herbert is not running for re-election, making this the first race with an open seat in over a decade. Chris Peterson is a professor at the University of Utah, teaching business law. Before that, he has spent extensive time working in government. Chris has worked as a special advisor for the U.S. Department of Defense, leading Pentagon efforts to protect military service members from unfair lending. He also spent time working under the Obama administration for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to protect citizens from unfair practices. His running mate, Karina Brown, also has experience advocating for citizens in local government, serving as one of the citizen sponsors of Proposition 3 in 2018 that aimed to expand Medicaid in the state of Utah. The proposition passed with majority vote, but was later altered slightly during the 2020 legislative session by the state government. Karina also serves as co-chair of Cash Celebration of Women's Suffrage 2020, an organization working to celebrate the 19th Amendment granting women the right to vote. I spoke with Chris and Karina on July 29th, asking them more about their campaign policies, what their goals and priorities would be if elected, and what changes they believe are needed in the state to be successful. At the time of this interview, Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox's campaign did not respond to multiple requests for an interview at the forum. A disclaimer before we get started, some portions of the interview had to be edited out for time constraints, but you can read the full unedited interview with Chris Peterson and Karina Brown on our website, wc4media.com. I'm here today with Chris Peterson and Karina Brown, the Democratic candidates for Utah's governor and lieutenant governor. Chris and Karina advanced straight to the November ballot after the Democratic State Convention on April 25th. So thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Cami. Thank you so much for having us. It's an honor to be here. Big fan of Westminster University and and I'm excited to talk with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for hosting us, Cami. Um, Cami had reached out uh, weeks ago to make sure she had her pictures during the Republican primary. So thank you for promoting balance in government. We appreciate that. After speaking with college students on Westminster's campus to find out what their top priorities are when it comes to voting, I asked the two about four different issues. Education, climate change, police reform and racial justice, and the coronavirus pandemic. Today, we'll just be diving into your campaign, uh, kind of understanding where you stand on the issues, especially the issues that college students care the most about. But before we get into all of that, I'm really interested in hearing what encouraged you to to run for office. To answer your question, I uh, was a bit surprised. It hadn't been planning like many people to run for governor for uh, years on end, but I have been in public service a long time. And I think that it made sense that the Democratic Party reached out and recruited me to run for governor. And I'm excited for the, the opportunity to do so because I do think that it's time for change. I think that we've had one party control in our state for a long time. And that's okay. I mean, the, the, the public should get the government that they want, but that doesn't mean that just because it was like that in the last election or the one before that we should continue down that same path. I care so much about people. I want to make sure that our government's working working for ordinary Utahns all across our state. And so I'm excited to talk about the issues today and share a bit about our message. And then Chris, you haven't held an elected position, but you have extensive experience like in law and advocacy for everyday citizens. So how do you think that experience will put you like in a unique position to serve as governor? 
I do have quite a bit of experience in government. You know, I, I worked in the Obama administration uh, helping set up the new Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or the CFPB it's called. Think about it as like the FBI, except for uh, trying to make sure that our, our student loans, credit cards, mortgage loans and things like that are fair and, and work for the public. And I also uh, worked at the United States Department of Defense, the Pentagon, uh, helping the Pentagon design its rules and policies to protect our active duty military service members uh, in the same way on some of the same issues. I do believe that I have some of the experience in the executive branch of government that would help me be an effective enforcer of the law. And the other thing I bring to the table is a decades-long track record of advocating for ordinary working Utahns, making sure that our marketplace is fair and treats people decently. Uh, I'm gonna be an advocate for things like improved access to healthcare, uh, consumer safeguards in the marketplace, increased funding for public education, and also we've gotta get this virus under control. I, I hope we're gonna have some time to talk about that as well. And then Karina, similarly, you also have extensive experience with expanding healthcare coverage across the state. And I think I read that you had a big role in getting Prop 3 on the ballot um, that passed. So how do you think this on the ground experience will help you as Lieutenant Governor? Actually, Medicaid is what drew me into politics. I was frustrated and angry after my mother passed away in the healthcare coverage gap. I was frustrated and angry with myself and the system, and I wanted to figure out what can I do to help this situation for other people that could be in similar circumstances to my mother. So through reaching out to elected officials, through getting involved, getting more organized uh, over the last several years, I was invited to be one of the five citizen sponsors of Proposition 3 to expand Medicaid, for it to get enough signatures for it to be on the ballot and for it to pass with the majority votes. And then to see approximately 120,000 Utahns are eligible for Medicaid that may need it. And especially during this time of the pandemic, it's really important. It's been so satisfying for me. And I'm so excited about the whole process of democracy, of the fact that we can make positive change. We can get involved. We can work together. And as Lieutenant Governor, I would have oversight over the elections. And that's just a sacred thing to me. It's a, it's a real privilege to participate in our democracy through voting. If you look at Utah's history, it's been over 30 years since we've had a Democrat governor, which was Scott Matheson, whose term ended in 1985. Utah is also typically a red state, giving its electoral votes to the Republican candidate every year since 1968. So I had to ask, what does he think his chances are? And Chris, like you mentioned a little bit earlier, a Democrat hasn't held the governor's seat since 1985. So, and also there hasn't been an open seat like we're seeing in this election in a long time as well. So why do you think you're the best candidate to take over, especially when Utah typically votes red? Well, Utah typically votes red, but not always. In the last election in 2018, we had a very big turnout where more young people, more lower income people, folks that uh, oftentimes vote Democratic turned out in big numbers. And that led to passage of uh, the Medicaid expansion proposition, a ballot measure that attempted to crack down on unfair gerrymandering in our elections. And they, they passed uh, medical marijuana when it's prescribed by a physician. Those three issues have been historically associated with Democratic politicians all across the state. So, you know, things may be changing here in Utah. If we can pass those three ballot measures, then a Democrat can win. And I think that with a lot of discontent about leadership in Washington uh, right now, frankly, uh, talking about the president of the United States, uh, and right now we've got, I think it's fair to say, some mismanagement of critical issues in our state. Our economy is really struggling, massive unemployment, a lot of businesses are failing. We're just not getting the job done in limiting the spread of this dangerous virus. With all of that happening, 
there's a chance we can win it this year. I'm not saying we're going to, who knows, but I do believe that there's real enthusiasm for change. And if we can get people excited and join our campaign, if there's a chance we're going to turn Utah blue in the governor's mansion this year. Then we got into it. I asked Chris and Karina about some of the most prominent issues college students look for in a candidate. I've done a bit of research and I've talked to different college students that I know on my campus just to find out what their top tier voting issues are. So I'd love to just go through with those and see how you guys would prioritize those. First, I started with education. Because Chris and Karina have different experiences but similar viewpoints, Chris spoke about college and higher education while Karina dove into the public education system in the state. According to an article by Forbes magazine in September 2019, Utah has the lowest average student loan debt in the country, but Utah ranked dead last in the country for per-pupil spending in the country, a spot the state has sat at for the last two decades. What goals and priorities would be surrounding making higher education more affordable as well as K-12 public education better prepared for stepping into college and beyond. On higher education, first let me say that I'm so grateful and excited to be talking with a college student like you and with your listeners. Most of you know I'm, I'm a law professor just down the street at the University of Utah. I spent my whole career trying to make sure that my students are taken care of and that I'm a good teacher, try to be. But I believe that the costs of higher education are getting too high. It's been outpacing inflation for years and years, and now students are struggling to reach for their goals. And after they graduate, they're struggling to repay student loans that they're taking on in size and volume that's just too high. But it's not the same at every university or every institution. The biggest problems, I believe, are actually are for-profit private schools that are trade schools that charge exorbitant tuition. But even beyond that, I think that we need to reinvest in our uh, higher education system, both with federal funding, state funding, and putting pressure on university administrators and leadership to get those tuition prices and fees down. And then after, when students graduate and they've got some student loans, we need to make sure that they're being treated fairly and that those student loan repayment systems make sense, that the promises that are made to them about um, student loan debt forgiveness for uh, are, are being honored by the government and by the private debt collection companies that are being hired by the federal government. And state government has a real role to play in that. Um, if I'm elected governor, I'm already putting pressure everywhere I can to try to make higher education affordable, but still high quality. So in regards to K-12 education, just to, as a matter of information for the viewers out there, our family has two daughters in college. One just graduated high school and then another daughter that'll be a, a junior. And then I have we have two children that are in uh, junior high and high school. Public school has been really important to our family. It's so important um, that we have that as a priority in our budget documents. There's been several stories recently that have come out that show that Utah's ranked one of the last states for per pupil funding and has been consistently one of the last states for per-people funding. And I know that we love our families here, and we love children here, but I think we need to put priorities on increasing the per-people funding amount for K-12 students and also increasing teacher pay. Also, I think we need to look at tax loopholes, tax credits, or incentives that are given out so that we are careful that our revenue is protected for the most important needs that we have. So yes, I think our budgets, our state budgets are moral documents. And when we prioritize learning, when we prioritize investing in the next generation, I think that's powerful. Then we got into climate change. Global warming and increasing air pollution pose massive concerns to college students in particular, who often consider themselves the population likely to deal with the most drastic effects. So what would some goals or priorities be surrounding that as well as reducing air pollution in the state? 
I think that climate change is one of the greatest challenges my generation and your generation are facing. The fate of the world rests in the balance of how we start to deal with this problem. We are seeing changes, but it's going to accelerate. It's going to cause a lot of problems in the coming years. And so I think that Utah has to do its part to start making changes. It's related to, but in some ways separate from the air pollution problem, which is a, a big problem here in the state of Utah and one that there's bipartisan agreement about. You know, Republicans and Democrats, everybody in Utah wants to clean up the air. And in the past years, the leadership has just not been getting the job done. We also need to start incentivizing a much faster transition to plug-in hybrid and electric vehicles that produce no or much lower emissions from the vehicles. I also think that we need to transition to distributed rooftop solar production and storage in our residences, especially new construction, but also retrofitting older residences, as well as our businesses and our public buildings. Every public school in the state of Utah could be a power plant if we started installing solar power panels on top of those buildings. I also think that we need to develop clean energy commercial power plants in rural Utah to try to get a good high paying jobs in rural Utah and also decrease our emissions. And that includes solar, wind, and Utah by some rankings has some of the highest availability of geothermal energy in the country. Well, we just haven't got the job done. It's time for us to transition and invest some of our infrastructure improvements in that. I'd also add too, we need to try to decrease the amount of time we're spending driving back and forth. And we can do that by encouraging more telecommuting. I think we're all learning something about that in the COVID-19 crisis and how you can be pretty effective in some of these online meetings once you get the hang of it and get used to it. And that's where we need to go. We need to try to make progress on climate change. It's a moral obligation we have to ourselves and to our children and our grandchildren. And I think community education is important when it comes to climate change. What can we do individually to help reduce climate change, man-made climate change, by our individual actions? And I think sometimes people get into this pattern of thinking, which is easy to do, like, whatever I do, it doesn't make a difference. And they fall, but we can make a difference, especially when we all work together. You're so right, Karina. We can make a difference. Human-caused climate change is real. Just as we caused it, we can stop. But we've got to have leadership and a sense of personal responsibility and start making changes. Next, we move to racial justice and police reform. With mass protests happening every day across the country for the last two and a half months, this has become an increasingly important issue among voters on both sides of the aisle, especially for young voters on the organizing fronts of the protests. Racial injustice and police reform, which has been a big issue that we've seen the last few weeks with several national protests, even here in Salt Lake City, we've been seeing them. Um, I was curious what your thoughts are on different state responses to the protests and kind of how you would address these issues if you were in office. Well, thank you, Cammy. It's such an important question, and it's one that's very emotional and difficult for a lot of people. But we need to lay some groundwork about values, and then let's talk about policy in a second. So first off, I want to start by uh, saying that in my view, the words Black Lives Matter are important to say. And I, by saying that, I don't mean to imply that other lives don't matter. That's not what I'm saying. I'm also not saying that police lives don't matter. We know that those lives do matter too. And I care about them. Obviously, I do. But uh, historically, Black Americans suffered when we had slavery. And there's been a long shadow of that, the Jim Crow era uh, and continuing ongoing discrimination. And they've been struggling from systemic racism. Look, sometimes racism is 
is the worst variety, where it's an intentional, deliberate, white supremacist sort of bigotry. But other times it's more subtle and sometimes it's accidental and people don't realize that they're doing it. But implicit bias is something that we all need to work on. I know that I do, everybody does. Uh, But that being said, I also recognize that there's an important place for protest in our society when people uh, are aggrieved, when when they have grievances, they have the right to speak up and be heard and assemble and petition the government for change. You know, I don't agree with violence. I don't agree with breaking laws or destroying property. But I want to emphasize that I think that's actually a very small number of people who are very frustrated. And frankly, I think that they need to be held accountable. But I want to know even those folks that are protesting, I still care about them and I still hear you and I'm paying attention. And I also have to say something about law enforcement. Right now, law enforcement is feeling demoralized. Uh, A lot of police have uh, morale uh, problems. They're feeling frustrated. Some of them are lashing out and behaving inappropriately. But many of our police officers are continuing to act with professionalism and care and are actually taking care of some of the protesters. I want our law enforcement to know that I also care about them and that I believe in law and order. And I'm grateful for the work that they're doing to try to protect victims of crime, which is still a real thing. Some of the reforms that I think think seem to make sense to me and that have promise for change include the training standards that the state government establishes. And that can include more implicit bias training, conflict de-escalation. I also think that we should be looking for ways to get the community involved in community policing, including citizen review boards. Uh, So that's just a handful of this. I realize I'm going on too long, so I'm going to stop. But I've been studying this quite a bit and I'm listening to both sides, uh, trying to prepare ourselves to find common ground and make progress de-escalate conflict, treat everyone with civility, decency, and respect. Well, yeah, I just echo what Chris said. I, you know, we've had some powerful discussions with different people and activists and community member asked us that we say Black Lives Matter. Chris and I got both got kind of emotional because Black lives do matter. And in addition to blue lives and all lives, but because of the history in our country of treatment, it's important to recognize and acknowledge their pain. I think we need to acknowledge their pain. I think it's important to protest or demonstrate in a peaceful way and not destroy property or harm people. We believe that there's positive ways to create change, that we can communicate, that we can build bridges, that we can come together and solve problems. We've discussed also with other law enforcement officers, like there should be like alternatives to deadly force, um, sharing information about officers that transfer so that if they are doing certain things in one department and then they go to another city, that should be on their record. For some reason, that hasn't been the standard procedure. And another one is just reprimanding police officers or giving them extra training. Police and law enforcement are expected to handle too much. They shouldn't be expected to be social workers. I mean, a lot of the calls that they get are mental health calls. That is a sad reflection of our society and the way that our budgets have been structured. We need to put money into people, individuals, to building people and investing people. I agree. You know, Cammie, can I mention one more thing too uh, that uh, Karina reminds me of? I've had some people say that all the Democrats want to do is defund the police. Maybe some do. I don't know. I go to a lot of meetings, a lot of Democrats, and I haven't heard anybody really saying that. Lastly, I asked Chris about his thoughts on the state response to the coronavirus. Current Governor Gary Herbert hasn't issued a statewide mask mandate or a lockdown order, which has prompted both criticism and support across the state. A mask mandate could be what divides voters in this upcoming election, with Chris in full support and his opponent Spencer Cox not publicly stating his thoughts. Because of this and other issues, Chris has been openly critical of the state's response to the virus. 
you talked about a little bit earlier, but you have been a little bit critical of the coronavirus response in Utah from state leaders. So I would love to just hear like what you would do differently. And if you were elected, what you would enact as governor to help deal with this um, pandemic. I have been, and I think that I'm right about that. But I want to get, emphasize again, it's not personal. I'm not trying to politicize anything. I respect Governor Herbert, and I respect uh, Lieutenant Governor Cox. They're good men. They work hard. They're civil servants, and I'm grateful for their work. But that being said, I don't believe that we're getting the job done. We have been a bit too hesitant in the way that we've rolled out some of the protections to try to limit the spread of the virus. Even at a more fundamental level, we have not been willing to do the leadership necessary to get the public to believe that we've got to start putting masks on. And I believe, and I've called for a statewide mask requirement. Now there are some reasonable exceptions, and I've come up with a list of about eight or nine different exceptions. But I think it's not too much for us to ask that we have a temporary requirement that when you're in public and when socially distancing is not feasible, but if you're going to be in a situation indoors or out of doors where you can't maintain distance with each other, and there's a chance that you could be spreading the virus to someone else, or they could be spreading it to you, then we need to wear masks. 30 states that have that kind of requirement and most of the countries around the world that have been more successful at, at flattening their curve and bringing the spread of the virus under control have also have a similar requirement. That's where it starts, but I also think we need to have uh, more resources and faster processing times for coronavirus testing. People need to know right away whether or not they may be at risk, whether or not they need to contact others that they may have infected, whether or not they can go to school or to work. They need to have that information much, much faster. I'm I'm worried that our public school system could become super spreader sites where we could infect hundreds of people. I'm not convinced that we actually have the resources, the protective equipment in place to do this in a safe way. They need to act more decisively. We've got to get these numbers down now. It's an emergency. And look, it's not, it's not about politics. This is a natural disaster. They're not perfect, but they can manage to prevent the spread of a lot of the disease. And that's the kind of simple time-tested technology we should be implementing in this state right now. But our leaders aren't doing it. We need that leadership. It's time for a statewide mask requirement. I'm hoping that the governor is going to do that in the next few days. Well, I should add, too, the Salt Lake Chamber had issued a, a statement saying that the businesses can't enforce a mandate within their stores unless the governor issues a mask mandate. So that's one of the things that really stuck with me when it comes to the mask mandate. Finally, I asked the two of them why this election is so crucial and why student voices are critical for them. I also gave them a chance to give one last final pitch for their campaign. Gotcha. Just as like a final closing statement, um, why college students should vote in this election include their voice when typically college students are kind of known for sometimes skipping out on things like this. Well, I'm counting on you to change <laughs> the world. <laughs> I'm excited because I can see things that happen when people come together to create change. I admire young people's excitement, concern for different issues. And I think that when you take your concern and your values and take them to the ballot box or to the <laughs> vote by mail ballot, our world will change. I'm just counting on it. Thank you, Karina. And thank you, Cammie. It's been great visiting with you. I believe in, in students. I mean, I, I've spent my most of my career teaching and trying to mentor students. I do believe that this election is a special election. And I know it's hard for a university student that's only been voting for maybe this is the first time or maybe the second time they've had a chance to vote to put it in perspective. America is not always like this. Uh, we don't always have mass protests in the streets of our cities. Uh, we don't have a shocking collapse of our economy and widespread discontent. Frankly, we've never had leadership that is, in my view, as corrupt and as unstable as the leadership that 
that we have in the White House right now. I think we have an important decision to make about whether or not we're going to stay going down this path, which is a dangerous path. But it's not just about the voting. That's where it finishes. But before then, we need volunteers. We need people to rise up because elections don't just win themselves. It's going to be about whether or not a movement rises up. I'm doing what I can, and I'm hoping that I'm talented enough and decent enough to inspire that. But it really has much more to do with the society and with the people as a whole. Whether or not you and your listeners can go home and look in the mirror and say to yourself, in this pivotal time in our history, did I do what I can? Did I do what I could do to try to make this world a better place? That's why I ran for governor. That's what I need from you, Cammie, and it's what I need for your listeners. I hope you will join us. I hope you will push, whether that's in our campaign or whatever campaign you choose to invest your time in. I hope you'll join us because it's not time to sit on the sidelines. We need to act now. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us. All right. Thank you, Cammie. Thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Behind the Ballot, a podcast introducing you to candidates. They are more than just a name in an envelope. Read the full profile on Chris Peterson and Karina Brown on our website, wc4media.com. And make sure to check out our social media for the latest updates at wc4media on all platforms. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Democratic candidate for the 2nd Congressional District, Cale Weston, who is a familiar face to Westminster College. Until next time.